The Sermon on the Mount is the largest continuous body of teaching that we have recorded that Jesus ever taught. Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7. Remember, Jesus was an itinerant preacher. That means he traveled. Let me give you some inside baseball on that, right? So when you guys go to retreats or conferences, you always come back and you're wowed by the speaker, right? And the reason why you're wowed is usually conference speakers, traveling itinerants, have five messages. And so what they do is they take these five great messages and they keep changing the illustration. They hear a better illustration. They read something new. They, they make the jokes better. And so you go there and you're all wowed. The problem is you come back here and I'm a local pastor. I'm like the poor. I'm always with you, right? 52 weeks. So every joke that I say is one and done, every illustration, I can't use it again. Now, we are preaching to a parade, right? I don't know if you know that. A church has to grow 10% every year to stay even. You all know that? And the reason is simple. People die, people leave, people get mad, uh, people switch churches. Uh, there's a whole list of reasons. So over time, a congregation changes but the old people are like, he said that 15 years ago. He used that joke 10 years ago. Is he going to tell his testimony one more time? Uh, Jesus would have taught parts or all of this wherever he would have gone. So as he went through all the cities of the Galilee, wherever Jesus would go, there would be snippets of this. And listen, he was the word of God. He was the word made flesh, right? So he's the word incarnate. And he begins to teach the people. And the Sermon on the Mount, recorded by Matthew, Luke gives us some of it in chapter 6. Again, it becomes the largest body of teaching we have by Jesus. The greatest sermon ever preached and the greatest talk ever given. It was so profound, it was 2,000 years ago, but think about how it's bled into our culture. It's bled in the songs and literature. For people that know the Bible or don't know the Bible, it begins with the Beatitudes, the blessed are thou's. And you don't have to be a Bible reader. You know, people have heard this. Blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. You can read this stuff in fiction. It's quoted. It's in songs. Blessed are the merciful, uh, the pure in heart. Uh, the idea that we are salt and light comes from here, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, this is famous. Jesus said, you have heard of old, thou shalt not commit adultery. But now if you look at a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. That comes from here. The Sermon on the Mount, uh, going the second mile, turning the other cheek, all here, the Sermon on the Mount. The Lord's Prayer, right? Now, I don't think Jesus had to pray this prayer. It's our prayer, but he taught us how to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The reason I can say it so fast is because I grew up in a domination where you just said it over and over and over and over. And if you did something wrong in school, you wrote it over and over and over and over. So that's how you were disciplined, like, Write the Our Father a hundred times. No, write it a thousand times. Uh, that and the multiplication times tables, right? Unbelievable how they made us do it, but we remembered it, right? Well, that comes from the Sermon on the Mount. Most people don't know that. Uh, the idea of loving your enemies comes from here, the Sermon on the Mount. Laying up treasure in heaven. How about this? The eye is the lamp of the body. How many times do you see that in the dominant culture? Uh, Jesus' famous teaching on not worrying. That we should be anxious for nothing, that how many of us by worry can add an inch to our stature, but that we're like sparrows, and if God feeds the sparrows, how much will he uh, more feed you and I who he loves? How about this one? Judge not lest you be judged, for the same judgment you judge, it'll be measured back to you, right? Very common uh, to quote that. Uh, another famous one, ask, seek, knock, right? 
Uh, ask and it will be given, seek and it will be open, knock. And, you know, we've heard this over and over again, knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. You know, we hear all of this. How about you will be known by your fruits? Comes from the Sermon on the Mount. How about Jesus saying many would come to him in that day saying, Lord, Lord, I did this in your name, I did that in your name. And he said, depart from me, I never knew you. Sermon on the Mount. And then, how about building on the rock or building on the sand, right? All these things, we came in here, we knew it, but we probably didn't know it came from this one body of teaching. Now, for all of that, the Sermon on the Mount has been misunderstood and misapplied. Here's why. Now, many people look at a phrase, Jesus used this six times, where he said, it was said of old. And sometimes he'll quote the law, the Ten Commandments. Other times he's quoting an oral tradition. We'll get into some of this, the Mishnah, some Targums that were written. You know, the Jews would argue these points. There's an old saying, if you put three Jews in a room, you'll come out with four political parties. So they, they love to tease all this stuff out. And so uh, what they had heard of old, remember, they didn't have Bibles. What they had heard of old was sometimes rabbis discussing things. Sometimes it was the word of God. Sometimes it was the Old Testament. Jesus said, you have heard this. Now I'm telling you that. So Christians would look at this and say, well, this replaced the law. So now this is the Christian law. This is the Christian creed. This is how we live. And then people look at it and say, well, wait a second. I had trouble with adultery. Now you're telling me if I look at a woman, I'm in trouble? And it looks like it's even more difficult, and so people get frustrated and leads to legalism. Other people have looked at it and said, no, this is like a constitution. This is how nations should live. So here we are. It's a brand new year, and already there's saber-rattling, right? Iran and the United States, and, you know, Will Durant said the legacy of man on earth is war. It's never going to stop. Jesus said you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. And some people say, well, if we're a Christian nation— and I would argue there's no such thing, there's Christian people, then we should just turn the other cheek, right? 9-11, we shouldn't respond, we should turn the other cheek. So there's all these ideas about the Sermon on the Mount. We'll get into it over six weeks, we'll break it down, we'll look at it, we'll dissect it, but to really understand it, you have to go to the end to understand how Jesus begins. Chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus says, therefore, he's drawing a conclusion, Whoever hears these sayings of mine, whoever's listened to these teachings and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on the house, and it did not fall, for its foundation was on rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, he will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Now notice, the same conditions come. The rain, the wind uh, blew upon this house, and great was its fall. There's a gentleman who comes up to me Sundays on church. Not every Sunday, but occasionally, particularly this Sunday, because I was talking about vision for 2020. And it drives him crazy. He's saying, Pastor Bob, this is such great content. The problem is po most people will never apply this. Only about 10% of this will ever apply be applied doesn't that frustrate you and he wants me to brainstorm how we can get people to do this and I'm I always tell him I said look you're going to create more work for everyone can I tell you this if they didn't apply what Jesus said do you think they're going to apply what I said 
This is the greatest man that's ever lived. This is God in the flesh. And Jesus said, half of you here will not build on this foundation I'm talking about. You're going to build your house on sand. And it's such a great metaphor, right? Because, because we're all builders. We're all building a life. We're all making choices. We're all making decisions. And, and, and we want to be led by God. We think God's leading us, but we are the sum total of all our choices on how we should build a life. And most of what we're building life around is what's going to make us happy, right? I mean, let's be honest. You know, sometimes we're, we're being led of God, but in the back of our mind, we want to move because of weather and a better job, and we can raise our kids better and so forth and so on. And so the Bible says, unless the Lord builds the house, they who labor, labor in vain. And so Jesus is showing us how to build a house on the rock, how to have a sure foundation. Now, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You know, hearing the word of God, the information is only one part of it, but it has to be applied. James says that we can't be hearers only. Now, we have to be hearers, so that's great. But there must be application because if there's no application, then we're like, we're like those who deceive themselves. They look into a mirror, they forget the image that they saw. And it's been this way, you know, since time began, right? So God brings Israel out of Egypt, and he brings them into this wonderful land. They're ready to go into a land, listen, filled with milk and honey. And right before they go into the land, you know, Moses lays out for them all of these blessings that will overtake them. Deuteronomy chapter 28, blessed you'll be in the field, blessed will your, your kneading bowl, blessed will you be in the city. And, and God rolls out all these blessings if, he says, you obey all that I have commanded. Now, why does God want obedience? Well, God wants to be close to us. And not only that, God wants what's best for us. These aren't restrictions. God's saying, look, this leads to life. So God sets before them all these blessings and then all the cursings, and then God makes it a pass-fail test. Choose life. Here are the blessings, here are the cursings, and by the way, choose life. Now, Joshua says, well, as for me and my house, we choose the Lord, right? And some of you have that like in your garden on a plaque or over your door, right? But Joshua really meant it. But a lot of Israel didn't mean it. And many of them perished in the wilderness. And, and as you know the story, the book of Judges, every man did what was right in his own eyes. And they were overtaken by other nations and they weren't the lender. They became the borrower. And they weren't a blessed people. Here's the problem in ministry, here's the problem in life, here's the problem with counseling. You can lead a horse to water. You can tell the horse how great the water is, how cold it is, how refreshing, how much nutrition there is, how the hydration's good for the horse. But you can't make a horse drink. And as a pastor, it breaks my heart. You know, I've done marriage counseling for 26 years. And I'll still do it, and I'll go anywhere where people are struggling, and I'll meet with them. But in the back of my mind, I've done it so, so long and so often, I know most of these people don't lack for knowing what to do. Most of them lack for wanting to do it. That's our condition. And so Jesus said, look, some of you will build a life by my words. And you'll be fruitful, 30, 60, and 100-fold. Others will build on sand. And, and really to stretch the illustration... And, and we get the idea of building, but you probably couldn't understand this. Israel is very rocky. 
and it's very rocky around Jerusalem and Judea, and that's where most of the people live. If you're on a tour and you begin to go down to the Negev to, towards southern Israel, it becomes beautiful, verdant land, but there's very few houses there. You know why? Because it's sand down there. And so when the storms come, you know, water comes down from the mountains and wadis begin to fill. And if you have a house down there, it washes away. And so the illustration goes even further. And, and think about Lot, right? You know, Abraham tells Lot, you know, pick of all the land from all around this region. And Lot chose a beautiful, prosperous land. That's why his wife looked back when God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. So, so there is a way that seems right unto a man. There, there is the scoreboard of this world. There is the way we succeed and get ahead and become rich and successful. And then there is building our lives on the things that Jesus taught us. And in verse 28 of chapter 7, it says, So it was that when Jesus had said these things, the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority not as the scribes. People were blown away. And, and you have to remember, people are coming out to Jesus. That wasn't the norm. Normally you would go to a synagogue or to the temple. They're coming out to hear him. They are astonished. Do you know why they're astonished? Not because this was groundbreaking. We can find most of this in the Old Testament. They were astonished because Jesus brought the word of God to a place where not only could the people understand but there was an excitement and a joy in their hearts. You know, the scribes were all about the outward. It was all about religion. It was all about regulations. It was all about pleasing God through the externals. Now comes a man who understands where they live. And I've said it before, most of us just want to be happy, don't we? Most of us want to raise children and send them to college and enjoy life. People generally want to be happy. And, and, and if you say that in Christian circles, people are like, don't talk like that. God doesn't want us to be happy. God's more concerned with our holiness than he is our happiness. Well, then why does Jesus start the Beatitudes with happy are the poor in spirit? For theirs is the kingdom of God. Happy are those who hunger and thirst at the righteousness. Happy. That word blessed is happy. The word Beatitude is Latin. It means to be supremely happy. Uh, way before the message, we had Amplified Bibles. I think you have to be over 50 to have had one, because it was a book, actually. The Amplified said, blessed is happy. To be enviably fortunate, spiritually proper, prosperous, to experience God's favor. God wants us to be happy. God wants us to be filled with joy. And so Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount answering two questions that everyone wants to know. What is the good life? And who is a good person? That's what every religion, whatever their creed, whatever their formula is, they're, they're trying to say, what is the good life? Who is the blessed person? And Jesus comes along and he meets them right where they are. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of God, heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when, you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus begins to look at these attitudes of the kingdom. Who really is blessed? And he begins by saying, blessed are the poor And thank God, Matthew adds spirit. Luke says, blessed are the poor. I'll get to that in a minute. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Can I tell you this? There is no blessing in poverty. I've seen poverty. I've traveled. I've been in extreme poverty. There is is no blessing. There's no thing desirable about poverty. There's no condition of blessedness. Uh, Dick Allen played for the... Phillies, the first baseman, he said, look, I've been poor and I've been rich and rich is better, okay? And I think we all understand that poverty is not God's design, it's man's design. Generally, where there's poverty, man has been involved. But abundance was God's design. God put Adam and Eve in a garden, not a slum, gave them all the trees to eat of, put boundaries and borders, you know, they couldn't eat of the knowledge the tree of knowledge of good or evil when Israel came in the land God says I'm bringing you in a prosperous land a land flowing with milk and honey when we get to the book of Proverbs it says that the lazy man the man who's devoid of character and 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 doesn't you know store up that leads to poverty but it says the diligent man will be made fat his 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 vats will overflow with new wine his barns will be filled this is all through the scriptures Jesus said Give, and it shall be given to you. So to give, you have to have something. And men will put back into your bosom, good measure, pressed down, running over. You know, the Bible speaks over and over again about abundance. And so we have to be careful of extremes, right? You have Solomon on one hand, who, who through all his wisdom was blessed, and, and it led him away from God, right? He fell in love with foreign women, you know, over 600 of them, you know, I've always believed it's hard enough to have one wife. Why would you want 600? But, hey, that was Solomon. And it led him astray, and he worshiped other gods. And then you have Jesus on this side. Nowhere to lay his head. No home. Now, I'm not against a vow of poverty. You know, if someone wants to live a lifestyle where they think living on less or, or foregoing some of the things of this world, that's wonderful. But those are two extremes. But caught right in the middle is probably what the psalmist said, Lord, don't give me too little that I'll curse you, and don't give me too much that I'll go away from you. And that's the hardest thing to fight is prosperity. It's the hardest thing to fight here. You know, we're a church that started in a theater, and we set up and we broke down and we cut our own grass, and, you know, then we moved to another place and we did all the same things. Now people come here and everything's done. And now it's harder to live with this prosperity than it was before. It's harder in our nation. It's harder in a family that has prosperity. So there's nothing desirable about poverty. But Luke records, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom. Now there's a beautiful truth to this. Because think about the people that were following Jesus. You you know the reputation Jesus had. He was a friend of sinners and tax collectors. This was a ragtag group of people. There were prostitutes there. There were alcoholics there. 
There were people of ill repute. There may have been Gentiles there. We're, we're unsure, but I'm sure there was a great mixture. People that would never darken the door of a synagogue were probably there. And Jesus says, blessed are the poor. And for the first time, the poor were being elevated. I don't know if you know this, but most of the history of religion was for the elite. When we read Corinthians and Ephesus, we know that they had these wonderful temples to Diana and to false gods, and there were temple prostitutes. Most of that was for the rich. It was for the elite class, still is around the world. And for the first time, Jesus said, no, the kingdom of the heavens is even available to the poor. And Christianity has elevated to the poor, and we're a byproduct of that. But again, don't equate that with something desirable about human poverty. It's not something God has ever desired. It is an act of man. What Jesus is driving at in this quality of spirit is a poverty of spirit. In other words, the entrance into the kingdom is a humility and a poverty where we understand that no one is good, that no one's righteous before God. In fact, you can't even see the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus comes to Nicodemus, the teacher of the Jews, and says, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. You know, you are the teacher in Israel. You've risen to the top. But you need to start all over again because you'll never even see God's kingdom until there's a humility and a quality of spirit where you realize there's nothing of yourself that will ever gain God's favor. And I think the crowd we have tonight, most of you know that, right? Most of us came to a point in life where we put up our hands and said, God, I surrender. There's nothing I'll ever be able to do to merit your favor. I look at the cross, it is finished. And God, I want to empty myself that you might fill me. That's what Jesus is saying when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And by the way, he modeled all this. He who was equal with God came and became like us, took on human flesh. In his humility, he became the creation. Now, once there's a poverty of spirit, Jesus said there is a condition of blessedness. There is a joy, a happiness to those who mourn, because they will be comforted. Let's follow Jesus again. You know, Isaiah said he was a man acquainted with grief. You know, nowhere in Scripture do we find Jesus laughing. I think he laughed. You know, I don't think you can be with sinners and tax collectors and people having a good time and not laugh. I don't think you can go to a wedding and not laugh. We know Jesus wept, right? He wept. When Lazarus died, he looked around. I don't think he wept for Lazarus. I think he wept that we would ever go through that. We have a family in church right now. I just got a text. They're pulling the plug on someone they love tomorrow morning. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of weeping in that room. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. He mourned the condition of the people of Jerusalem. He mourned the fact that he was their Savior. He was their Messiah. They had missed the opportunity. And I think like Jesus, we mourn two things, the condition of our world, that God has come to set people free, and God has come to bring people new life, and we look at what's going on in our world, the craziness, and what people are doing to themselves, and there's a mourning, we mourn for our children who aren't walking with the Lord, and if you're a parent, a teacher, an educator, a pastor, there's a lot of mourning in life. We mourn for our condition, right? Paul, the things I want to do, I don't do. Things I do, I don't want to do. Oh, wretched man that I am. 
Now, I don't think Jesus was saying, if you really want to be happy in life, walk around miserable. I don't know how many of you saw the movie Amistad. It's a story about African slaves who they find on a ship in Boston. And to make the story short, John Adams winds up going before the Supreme Court uh, so that these people can be released and live in a free society. But there's a point where, as the trial's going on in Boston, uh, they're all in chains. And every day at the courthouse, these abolitionists show up who are all Christians or predominantly Christians. And they wear black and, you know, they're drab and their faces look sour and they have Bibles. And the Africans can't speak English, so they give us kind of uh, their language and the English subtitles, and they're like, why do these people come around every day? And why do they wear black? And why do they carry a book? And, and one African says, why are they so miserable? And we know why they're miserable, because we live in a free nation where people are still slaves. But I don't think Jesus is saying, look, walk around miserable all day, watch the news, lament the condition of the world, you know, see the glass half empty. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think the back end tells us a lot. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. See, there's a back end to all this. I think what Jesus is saying is, as we live in this world, there's going to be tribulation. There's going to be times of mourning. The beautiful thing, there is a God of all comfort. And this is what I love about the church. My daughter Leah was 25 years old, got in an accident Christmas Eve coming to services. Uh, she had a concussion to start out with. This turned into a condition that lasted for a year where she literally would go to bed at 5 o'clock, couldn't work for a year, uh, very debilitating disease, hard to watch anybody 25 years old, especially your daughter, go through something like this. Someone so creative and loving life. The beauty is... We watched the church rally. We saw her friends, her age come around. Here was the beauty of it. Our friends, 40 years old, 50 years old, some of them in their 70s, they came and cooked. Uh, they gave her showers. They, they, they gave her reflexology on her feet. And it's that whole 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that, that the God of all comfort has comforted us that we might comfort others in our time. And so, yeah, there is this morning, but we live in a community where there is great comfort. And Jesus said to be in a cold, dark world where there is a community of faith, hope, and love, where we can find comfort is a, is a wonderful thing and a great source of joy. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, none of them were sitting on the front row. When Jesus said, blessed are the meek, they were way in the back, right? Because all the achievers had shoved their way to the front of the line. I would have been one of them, right? You know, I'm the kind of guy, when I'm in the checkout, I'm scanning all the lines. How many groceries does everybody have? Is that checker good? Or are they not good? And, you know, the 10 or less, I'm the guy with 15 and the 10 or less because I got to get through, right? Uh, because I was raised in Philly, we used to go to sports games, we would buy the cheap seats, but the whole game, our eyes were on who was in the lower bowl so we could make the move, right? So, but Jesus said, blessed are the meek, way in the back. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Now, he didn't say the weak. See, this is what we think. We think someone who is meek is a milk toast, right? 
I used to use the illustration where you think they're like Mr. Rogers, but he's cool now. So, uh, but it is like Mr. Rogers, right? On the outside, he was very meek, but he was very strong. He actually tackled tough issues for his day. Jesus was meek. He was lowly, but he was strong. Meekness is power and courage, but it's under control. It's not Gideon in a wine press, afraid of the Midianites. It's an inner courage. It's an understanding like David had that, that, that the Lord is involved in the battle. That I, I don't have to shove and push ahead. I don't have to climb the ladder. I don't have to climb over other people. That God will make way for me. God will make room for my gift. And I love the idea that Jesus was both lamb and lion. That he was meek and he was lowly. He could put children on his lap, but then he can get a whip of cords and overturn the tables of the money changers. And so Jesus had anger, but he sinned not. We need people that are meek. We need people who are strong, but it's under control. Blessed are those, it says, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. I, when, when you become a Christian, there's a new nature. Um, old things have passed away. Now, we still have desire, but we don't orient our lives around desire. And even though that desire is there, you know, we have the, the fruit of the Spirit, the, the self-control that we have to put into place. But at the end of the day, there's this hunger and there's this thirst for righteousness. That's why we're here tonight, right? We want to be filled. Uh, Bill Wong, who started the public reading of Scripture, I'm so blown away. Here's a Wall Street analyst worth over $100 million dollars and he's spending his money and his time and his energy that he might be filled with the word of God and others by starting the public reading of scripture on Wall Street. And so Jesus said, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And there's this hungering now, there's this thirsting for righteousness. Not for religion, for righteousness, for right standing, to be in right standing with God. And it says that we shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Can't read that without seeing that scene in Gladiator. Am I not merciful? Right? <laughs> you, know why, you know why Commodus is saying that? Because if you were merciful and meek and mourned in that day, you were weak. Emperors would never mourn. They, they weren't humble. You know, that, that's not even a common trait today. You know, I'm still looking for the Forbes 100 list of the most merciful people. You'll never find it. There's no scholarships for mercy. There's no lifestyles of the merciful. It's just not going to find it. It's not valued in our culture. But it's so necessary. And here's what's weird about it. It's what everybody wants. You know what the word mercy really is? It's really grace. If you really look at all these translations, it's really grace. Everybody wants grace. Everybody wants mercy, right? As soon as somebody wants some, does something wrong, we all want mercy. We all want grace. Problem is we don't want to give it. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful. Here's a beautiful thing. They shall obtain mercy. Man, that means a lot to me. Uh, Calvary Chapel was built on this 
wonderful biblical concept of grace. And the idea that, you know, again, this poverty of spirit where we're continually blown away of our right standing with God even though we don't deserve it. It's a beautiful thing. And, and that should lead, and unfortunately it doesn't, that should lead toward having mercy toward others. I was touring somebody around our building who had never been here before and um, loved this guy. He's a student of God's word. And we got into a debate. And we talked about the Jesus movement. We talked about Calvary Chapel. We talked about grace. And we said, you know, it, it's kind of nostalgic to look back and say, isn't it cool that all the hippies came into Calvary Chapel, Chuck Smith Church? But in reality, if you lived during that time, you know it wasn't that cool. They were smelly, dirty, lazy, right? Um, they were undesirable. You know what the closest thing I could find today to people flooding our churches would be gays. That's the closest thing I can find. And it would take a lot of grace, right? And see, those who love grace obtain grace. That's why Jesus told stories and parables about, you know, how in the world could you be freed of a $50,000 debt and then put somebody in prison for $5? How could we who have been freed be so judgmental? And so Jesus says here, one of the conditions of the good life is to have mercy. And praise God, we're at a church where our doors are wide open and, and we have the heart of God that, that all might be saved. Turn to Luke real quick. Uh, hard to read this without reading Luke chapter 6, and I think it fits here. Verse 21, blessed are you who hunger, and here, here's the phrase, now. For you shall be filled. Blessed are those who weep now, you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and exclude you, cast you as evil. Uh, great will be your joy in heaven. You know, Jesus is saying, look, sometimes, sometimes these things aren't going to work out in the here and now. Sometimes the story doesn't end like Job. But great is your reward in heaven. Verse 24, but, but woe to you. Now, Matthew doesn't give us this. Woe to you who are rich because you have your consolation. Woe to you who are full, you, have, you, know, you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh, you shall be filled. And then he goes through all, you know, loving your enemies, so forth and so on. But in verse 35, he says, love your enemies, do good, lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. And here's the phrase, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. God is kind to the unthankful and evil. And by the way, we were all in that class at one time. Praise God. At one time, that was you and me. And you look around our world and you think, oh my gosh, this person slanders God. This person cheats and lies and they live in a mansion and things work out for them. And, and it, it's like Psalm 1. You know, blessed is the man who lives before God. But the, the wicked are like the chaff that the wind blows away. And there's actually a mourning over that, that, that everything they have is here and now. Because there's these woes that are coming, and it should break our hearts. But if God is kind, and if God is long-suffering, 
And what Jesus is saying is, so, so should we. This is the good life. This is the good person. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's one of the great promises of Scripture. It's the promise of every religion is one day you're going to see God. And the idea that to be pure in heart is scary. Thank God the, the Bible talks a lot about this. Psalm 24 says, Who may ascend the holy hill of the Lord? Who may go into his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. And listen, I will give you a new flesh, heart of flesh for the heart of stone. A pure heart isn't something I'm mustering up, it's something God does. God exchanges that heart of stone for a heart of flesh, the water of the word of God. And so it's, it's the heart here that Jesus is driving at on the Sermon on the Mount. Proverbs says, guard your heart, out of it flow the issues of life. Jesus, out of the heart come all wicked desires and all wicked things, envy and lust. And, and so, so the heart is what Jesus is driving at. That's why he said, if, you know, if your hand caused you to sin, cut it off. You know, you, you, you're going to sin another way. It, it's the heart of the matter. It's the inside. And that's why when we get to adultery and murder and the law and, and judgment, we'll talk about all these things. But one day we will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Uh, another beautiful thing in the church is this idea of reconciliation, right? The Bible says that we should owe someone nothing but to love them. Uh, as much as depends on us, we should be right with all men, you know. Matthew 18, there's this reconciliation. It's a beautiful thing. And then the whole idea is, blessed are you when you're persecuted, reviled. Notice, it's for righteousness' sake. Not because you were stupid, right? Not because you say dumb things. Not because of your zeal that's not according to knowledge, Okay? You know, we want to be persecuted for righteousness' sake, for doing the right thing. Now, I want to tie this in because Jesus gives an illustration here. He says, if we have these attitudes, if we live this way, um, he says in verse 13, you become the salt of the earth. You become the light of the world. However, if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's good for nothing to be thrown out and trampled on. You're the light of the world, but a city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor a light put under a basket. Let your light so, so shine before men that when they see your good works, they will glorify your Father in heaven. So I think it goes two ways. I think when we're living the life God has called us to live, I think on one end it makes us attractive. I think on the other end it leads to persecution. You know, we're called to be salty. And I know salty means a different thing today, but let's look at this context, right? <laughs> right away we say, okay, salt was a preservative. It was more than a preservative. Salt was so precious in that day, soldiers were paid in salt sometimes, and they would put it in a container, and that's where we get the word salary from. Because it had so many uses. It was medicinal, uh, it was certainly a preservative before refrigeration, but it had other qualities. Number one, it would make you thirsty, right? There's a reason why they sell popcorn in a movie theater, right? Because they want you to buy popcorn and then go get a Coke. 
it preserves, it enhances flavor. Something's bland, you put salt on it. So we always tend to look at things in the negative. Well, well, we're preserving the world, right? You know, Ravi Zacharias tells this Indian proverb of a guy who, who owned a village. And uh, one by one, you know, people began to buy all the houses of the village, but there was one guy who wouldn't sell out, right? Right in the heart of the village, this one guy didn't sell his house. And every time the owner of the village came in, bragging how he owned this whole village, this guy would come out with his bony finger and say, look, if this rich man tells you he owns the whole village, he doesn't own this little house. Sometimes that's what we are as Christians. We're hunkered down, holding on. Like, we're holding on. You know, the world's bad, and this is all we got. You know, I, I try and look at it the other way. We are enhancing things. We're adding flavor. Read history. The great art, great literature, the greatest music, revival. Whenever the word of God was opened up, the Reformation, the printing press, television, whenever the word of God went forth, people were changed and nations were changed. The greatest view of this, I think, is Korea. South Korea, developing nation in the 40s, has one of the highest standards of living in the world highest ratio of Christians in the world. North Korea lives in abject poverty. We are the salt of the earth. There's something desirable about us. People are looking at us. They know there's a difference. And sometimes they ask you questions, sometimes you tell them. We have the greatest message about sexuality, about economics. You know, when you go down the list, sometimes they persecute us. Because if we take a stand on human sexuality, they turn it into, well, that's hate crime, right? But that's persecution. And Jesus said if he was persecuted, if they reviled him, if they didn't understand him, they're not going to understand us. Now, this is a great place to end. Verse 17. Do not think I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill for sure, assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, and one day they will, not one jot or one tittle, one mark, will by no means pass from the law, excuse me, till all is fulfilled. Um, that means all is not fulfilled. The second largest body of teaching Jesus ever gave was the Olivet Discourse, where he answered the disciples' question, Lord, what will be the sign of your coming? The end of the age. That's all still out there. Whosoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then here's where we want to end. Verse 20, for I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes, and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. I picture Jesus saying that and shoulders slumping. Oh no, there's already 460 laws on how I keep the Sabbath. Now he's saying, I've got to exceed the righteousness of these guys. And people just want to give up. But by the time he gets to the end, they understand. 
exceeding the scribes and Pharisees means to go deeper, to look at something far more important, and that's our hearts. And that's what God really wants. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. It's not about rules. It's not about regulations. It's not about conforming to some code or some creed. The beautiful thing is God made us all different. We all have gifts and talents. But it's about the Holy Spirit coming along, transforming us by his grace. It's about growing every year in the knowledge of who he is. It's about the word of God coming in and filling us. And, and we look through the ages. We look at the transformation of lives. And none of us is perfect. You know, think about everything I just read. You know, think, think of how much we miss the mark. But the beautiful thing is mercy and grace. You know, C.S. Lewis said that if this life was unattainable, Jesus would never taught it. So it is attainable. It's, it's attainable because we walk with him. So, so we want to be people that ascribe to this, right? This, this is the life that brings joy. This is the life that brings happiness. And as we go through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, you know, this is the foundation that we want to build on. This is the foundation that the storms of life, as they come against us, we can stand, right? Because we're in right standing with God, because we understand grace, because we brought nothing into this. We know it's all of him.